only discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements, endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers and I'm just jumping in here to give you guys an update of what's going on with this episode. Originally, we had, we being Nick and I, had planned to do Apocalypse Now for our next episode. It's recorded, I uh, started editing it and everything, but I got a really interesting opportunity that I couldn't pass up. Ross Bigley, who is the the mastermind behind the Milwaukee Short Film Festival, which uh, a couple of my films have played at, uh, wasn't able to do the festival this year, so he's doing a best of virtual festival, which uh, my film, Do You Love Me, is part of. But with this virtual festival, he's kind of gotten all the some of his favorite films that he's ever shown at the festival and is playing them virtually this coming weekend. So, uh, uh, starting tomorrow, September 11th. And with it, he had asked me if I had any interest in interviewing any of the filmmakers, so I agreed. Uh, I actually got the chance to sit down and talk with Linda Rice, who is probably best known as a property master, prop master, for major Hollywood films turned filmmaker. And she made a film called Ready to Go, which is playing this weekend. And uh, I had a fascinating talk with her. We, we talked about a lot. We talked about how she got involved in being a prop master, how she took everything she learned from being on set, being a prop master, and, and worked that into directing, and all the lessons you can learn about directing by doing these other jobs on set. And she's worked with a who's who of directors. She's got a chance to work with Alexander Payne. She worked on American History X, American Beauty, Reality Bites. She worked on Stranger Things. She worked on True Detective. This woman has an insane list of credits, has a lot of information to impart, made a really cool short film. And I think there's a lot we can learn from her because she had a very successful career as a prop master and decided that I don't want to do that anymore, not because I don't enjoy it, but because I would rather focus all my time and energy on becoming a filmmaker, becoming a director, because she's very much an all-or-nothing type of person. And, you know, she even talks about how it can be difficult for you when not only you're a little older in age, but a female trying to get into this very male-dominated world, and how she's tackling that with gusto. So, yeah, this conversation of Linda Rice is fantastic. I had a great time. We went for about an hour and a half. I probably could have easily went longer, but I think what we have is phenomenal. Uh, I'm going to let you know right now there is a uh, there uh, was a little bit of technical issues. If you hear what if you hear my voice echoing at all throughout the episode, uh, that was just me trying to fix some of the issues, but I think this conversation came out great and I can't wait for you to hear my conversation with Linda Rice. And please, check out the Milwaukee Short Film Festival's virtual festival this weekend. You will not be disappointed. There's a lot of fantastic films that I think you will really enjoy. So, thank you very much for listening. And once again, the Milwaukee Short Film Festival starts September 11th, 2020. Give it a go. I think you guys are going to see some cool stuff. Thanks.
so Ross set this up for us. Okay. Right, real quick, are you already recording everything? So in case. Yeah, he switched it on and he said it would just go indefinitely. Perfect. What I, how I like to do these is, you know, I just like to get talking and just, you know, see where the conversation takes us. I, I gave myself some rough notes, but I always kind of like the Dick Cavett way of doing things of just make it a conversation. Yeah. And go from there. Um, and usually what I'll do is uh, uh, since I've been I've been doing a pod this podcast for about four years. It's primarily about film and cinema related about uh, we we create it with the whole intent of. We had me and my my friend who does it. We have realized in our time, not only studying film but making film, that there's just some big films you miss sometimes, and you don't know quite why, but you do. Right. But then when you're in a group and people are like, "Oh, have you seen The Godfather?" and instead of being like, "No," you you lie a little bit. You're like, "Yeah, it's great." Yeah, I read the clip notes. <laughs> I saw the trailer. It's all good. So we we created this show as a way to kind of like start talking about some of those movies and take ownership for the stuff that we haven't seen. Uh, but on top of that, uh, since I'm so involved with the film culture of where of Wisconsin, as is Ross, I will occasionally do interviews. I've moderated panels for him, and I really, just if it's movie related, even loosely, it's got a home in my it, right. with what I do. Yeah, yeah. No, they were they were great. They showered showered my last film with awards with we ready to go won four awards with them in 2018 i was kind of like i wasn't there i was in the uk at the time and um and i was like wow thank you <laughs> it's kind of how i felt like, like uh, uh i had, I a, had film a film that played, that played there, there i want to say 2013 2014 and, and like, like it's it kind of gave me a big head because um you know, I made this film called From the Darkness Theater when I was in film school still. Right. And it was my senior thesis film, and it won all the awards. I won every possible award I could win at our student film festival, which is a cool feeling once you're amongst your peers. But then it also went to the Cannes Film Festival and played. Oh, wow. Great. Good for you. When you're in uh, barely out of college, so like I, this film that I made in school played there. I had a, a I won a competition where I could make another movie right after. It kind of, it gave me a big head, and then same thing. Ross showered me with awards, and it like it sets you up like you kind of have to learn to manage like those expectations. Yeah, no, my my same thing. My my first one we didn't play at Cannes, but um, we did become Oscar eligible wow and we got into 30 something festivals it won like 28 awards and all those were awards were either best short or best director mm -hmm. and um and it and it got me into the sony directors program Ooh, what's that I'm not, which I've is uh that. which is a diverse directors program that they run and then you you're officially like part of the sony family it doesn't hasn't given me a paycheck yet that's just that's something that cool up. to put on a resume, I guess. But it's absolutely, it's a very cool thing to say that you're a part of. And, you know, every everybody in Hollywood loves somebody who's chosen. Oh, you were mm -hmm. picked for that? That's great. Um, but the guy who ran that program became obsessed with my film. You know, and that's it. It's like, you know, other people are like, yeah, no, it's a good little film. I liked it. And yeah. And the people who loved it were just like, you know, angels sang when I watch, you know, and I'm like, wow, okay, you know, it's a good little film, but let's not get carried away here, you know, it's not like, you know, Citizen Kane or anything, but uh, but it's true, you do kind of, now my second film, I'm like, what do you mean it didn't get into that festival? 
Yes. Like, you know, it's, you know, what do you mean? I didn't win something there. I won something there last time. And then you start to realize that actually it was kind of a big deal, mm-hmm. you know, because you kind of get to a point where you think, oh, well, everybody's film gets this stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, it's, it's not such a big deal. And then when you start to, you know, there was a couple of festivals I got in before that we didn't get in this time. Very different film, Lancaster Park to Ready to Go. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was wild because it was suddenly like I realized, like, okay, you know, it was a, it, it was a big deal to, to get as much as we got and get in yeah. the places we got. And it's not like you're automatically a shoe-in. Mm-hmm. You know, even as an alum, and that as an as, as an alum of a festival where you've won before, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get in. I mean, you know, my short this time is a minute and a half longer than their regular cutoff. Yeah. And uh, Ross emailed me and he's like, I have been following. I see you have another film. Why haven't you sent it to us? And I was like, well, it's too long. And he said, how, how much too long? And I told him, he goes, oh, send it. Yeah, that's, send that's it. kind of how Ross is. You know, he said, that's, you know, if it was like 45 minutes, that's different. But, mm-hmm. you know, a minute and a half is not going not gonna, to, you know, make that much difference to us. Yeah. I have found with me, like you almost, and like you, uh, I, I love every film I've made, but the, when one that you made so early on gets so much attention and then like you put your heart into something else doesn't, you almost begin to resent that one film. Cause like my follow-up film that I did to the one that caught all the attention was a big deal for me because there's an organization here in Wisconsin called Milwaukee film. And they used to do this really cool program called, um, the, um, collaborative cinema where they actually allowed high school students to write a script right. and whatever they wanted to write. And then they turn them in, they would weed through them and like choose like a hundred of them that had some potential in any way. They'd have them in and actually have screenwriters and filmmakers in Wisconsin kind of help them sculpt their idea, their story and learn how to write a script. And then they go back and do another draft and then they choose like the 10 best. And then they let filmmakers like myself, um, come in and do a full-on pitch about which film they want to show and i was i was i was chosen they gave me like a bigger budget than i've probably ever had i had a you know i remember just one day where there was a generator on set that was probably the size of my living room (laughs) and i was i'm sitting there like what is happening and i don't think it played a single film festival outside of my home state well and it's like it kind of had like tamper these expectations like just because it's a bigger film doesn't mean it's going to connect. No, it doesn't mean it's doesn't, a bad film. Doesn't it just mean doesn't connect. A thing. Doesn't mean a thing. It's like I worked yeah. with um, Alexander Payne um, last year on a project. Just going to casually name drop Alexander Payne. I am going to casually name drop because <laughs> that is just who I am. Like, you have to get used to it. Um, well, you have a lot of cool credits, so that's, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> I, I said to somebody the other day, I need to get into this program because it will add gravitas to my resume. And she looked at me and she goes, you don't need any more. <laughs> gravitas on your fucking resume um no i did this project with alexander payne and we were talking about you know i loved nebraska and i loved election and i loved all his smaller films but downsizing was so weird so it's a different Mm -hmm. 
But it's his project. He, you know, he had that project with him for like ten years, trying to get it yes. made. Yes. Yes. And he, and it was kind of like, he took. It was a big studio jump, right? So it went from like indie, low budget filmmaking to suddenly downsizing was a much bigger budget, was a studio picture. And he said afterwards, I absolutely hated it. Mm-hmm. Because when you're an indie filmmaker, you might not have all the toys. You might have to be really clever about how you shoot stuff. But at the end of the day, you can decide what you're going to shoot, how you're going to shoot it, what the edit is like, and you own the final cut. When you do a studio film, you don't own the final cut. They own the final cut. And they can come in and make changes to your project afterwards. And, you know, Mm -hmm. he said it was absolutely awful. He had people breathing down his neck constantly. And he said, I would never go back and do another one. And the project yeah. that I was going to work with him on that actually the, the, um, it shut down because of some issues with the source material. Mm-hmm. And um, th- it, was, it was a small, tiny little budget thing that we were going to shoot in like seven weeks. It was yeah. a road trip movie. Which it was is... a two-hander road trip movie, you know. Which is like, would be perfect. Like, yeah, you know, I was actually a really, it was a shame because it was like, and it's so weird because, um, uh, Mads Michael, my Mads Mickelson, Mickelson, um, was going to be in it and they were shooting two days in Denmark. And so I had to fly to Denmark to prop him. And I'm in, I'm flying back from Denmark and I get this message going, the, the we're shutting down and i'm like but i just i just propped the actor in denmark yeah. you know what's going uh, on it's crazy i mean i know that that sounds odd when i said it was a small budget but i had to to, to they didn't want to want me to go yeah. and um but that was the first time he was going to work and i mm-hmm. fought really hard and i said it's not this one i was still propping i'm like it's not right to have a day player prop person prop my principal actor that I'm going to be working with for nine mm-hmm. weeks, you know, as the prop master, I need to, to be there, talk to him, figure out what he needs, give him options with Alexander and, you know, and I fought really hard and then I had to go to Alexander cause he said, well, when we're in Denmark and I'm like, they won't let me go. And he's like, ah, that's rubbish. Go off down the hallway. She's coming. Get her a ticket. <laughs> so I was like, thank you. Going to Denmark for two days. Awesome. You know, everyone like, so what did you see? And I'm like, the airport, the taxi, the hotel, the meeting room, the airport, the taxi, the hotel. <laughs> yeah, very little. Very little. When, when you when you get that little time. Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you'd mentioned just a moment ago when you're, you're telling your, your story that you said, when I was propping, are you no longer doing that anymore? I am no longer propping. I only really opted last year to go back to do this project mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. I worked with the designer on um, True Detective, <clears throat> excuse me, and, um, and I really liked him. Plus it would mean I would be standing next to Alexander Payne and watching him work, which is like a mini film school in itself. 
Um, and as a, you know, new, new coming director, any chance I have to watch how, you know, watch people work and shadow to a certain extent, I, I want to take. And so um, that's why I went back to it. But no, pretty much I have said, that's it. And I believe that, I mean, I, there's a lot of reasons, but I have to make, I have to sever it because it's really hard for people when you've had a career like mine for 30 years, mm-hmm. it's really hard for people to put you in another box if you keep drifting back and forth. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took all my savings and all my zero balance credit cards and I am now a, you know, almost retirement age, very poor director because I spent everything getting to this point and then COVID hit, which has been, well, it's been good, but um, no, no choice, no, no, there's no option to go back. Mm Mm-hmm. You've kind of just put it all into... Yeah, yeah. And I have... I mean, I have to. I have to. um, And it's just the way I am. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of an all-or-nothing person anyway. Um, And propping is... Because I've been doing TV for the last, like, eight years, um, a television show is nine months of, of insane work. It's really, you know, I don't, I just go down the rabbit hole. It's really hard to, it's not like I could go, oh, I can develop projects and take meetings and do things and come back and leave my people to run the set. I'm just not that kind of problem. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's really, you know, it, it, I think the top of my head would blow off. Plus, I'm just really done. It's yeah. been fantastic, but it's just not a big enough, space for me to tell the stories I want or to develop character or to do things and it's been fine but it also gets to a point where you know directors and actors especially new or or younger ones tend to not want you to help and I sometimes don't know why but um you know I have a theory on why yeah um, so I am a younger director. I've, I've not done a lot, but right. I've done a couple things. Uh, but with, with my experience being a younger director and I'm fortunate enough that I got to go to, uh, an avant-garde film, like uh, an art film school right. where, you know, some film schools and, uh, you know, USC and schools like that are phenomenal, but they, they train you to be part of the machine, mm-hmm. which if you want to work in the business is a great way to go. I don't have those tools to work in the business because what you know they didn't teach me how to grip, they didn't teach me how to light, they didn't teach me how to gaff, they didn't teach me how to do any of that stuff. But what they're really good about doing, they're like, here's a Bolex camera, here's how you operate it, buy yourself some film and go out and shoot something. Right. And we'll talk about it when you do. And they allowed us to fail. But because I went to a school like that, and I feel like, um, and, and it's not just my experience, but I'm kind of tying it all together, with a school like that, my Google Home just went off. <laughs> <laughs> my, um, um, you know, we, we, we learned a lot about the theory of filmmaking, and we, we, we learned a lot about these, you know, the auteur theory, this idea of 
taking ownership for your film. And I know a lot of my friends, since we were making everything on our own, we, we sometimes have a hard time letting go because we didn't learn to work as a group. And I feel like with nowadays in film, and I'm not trying to sound like an old fogey in any way, but where since everyone's got a really impressive camera in their pocket, they can go out and shoot something and they're learning, watching tutorials online. In, in a lot of ways, young filmmakers are learning to be extremely self-reliant and self-efficient, which is fantastic in a lot of ways because no longer are you like, well, I can't make a movie because I don't have a crew. I don't have people. I don't have anything. You can just go out and make something and make it at a pretty decent level. Oh, yeah. So, and I, so I think I think a lot of younger filmmakers are learning this very self-reliant style and probably are also looking up to the masters of filmmaking who came in like with very strong visions and they're thinking well that's what a director does that's what a filmmaker does you come in and you you know not in a bad way but you boss your team around you tell them what you want and they make it and not realizing that it is collaborative right well you don't by you, being... you don't need to have all the answers you need to be able to answer questions when they come to you but you need to trust your costumer or your prop yeah absolutely master. absolutely because by 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 being closed to that, you mm -hmm. are closing off people bringing you something that might blow you out of the water yes. and go, oh, yes. my God, I never thought of that. That's fantastic. And at the end of the day, moving from propping to directing, I've and I've learned this from really good directors, too. It's like you hire really brilliant people to do the work. And you let them do the work because that's what they do all the time. You know, yeah. they prop all the time or they costume design all the time. That's their job. That's their career. They've spent their entire life honing their skills to this point to give you what you need. Yeah, it's, And it's... so when you allow that to happen, you get all and, and you can go. That's really fantastic. Not going to work for this project. But I really love it. And at the end of the day, it's going to be my name that says director. It's not going to say committee of, you know, department head directed this movie. You know, it's like my name will be on it. I'll ultimately have the last word. Um, but you've got to be open to all the things that could come. And it's the mm -hmm. same with actors. It's like, let's talk about who the character is and let's talk about all the things you know where you came from what you are who you are so that when you go on set your responses are organic i mean some actors really do want you to say look right now <laughs> but you know there are more that would rather go in and having you know having learned with you who that person is yeah go in and and then i go okay just let's just run it and then you see what happens and you go, oh, again, wow. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of you delivering it that way. But you know what? That's great. Or you then have to go in and gently maneuver if it's really they're coming from 180 degrees. And it's not. You know, so I think it's that that combination of being strong enough to know how to gently say no to people. If their if their ideas aren't working, but also being open enough to let everybody come to you with their ideas, 
you know it can get a little overwhelming if you're not i think if you're not used to i'm used to that from 30 years in filmmaking i think it can be really overwhelming if it's like your first or second film and you've not had 50 people coming up going this pen or this pen mm-hmm. you know or this jacket or this jacket or this thing or thing or what do you like what background person do you know and and if you can get overwhelmed yeah if you're not if you're not um experienced or, or strong enough to be able to look at all those things i i also think too it's it's especially like um because like i got started in in school making films. right and since so many you know if I, i'd have friends come up to be like oh i would love to do costuming for your film cool but then um you know it's a learning process for everyone because I've had co- people who, you know, weren't costume designers professionally or whatever, but you know, we're like, well, I want to do costumes. I've got a good eye. Cool. But they don't come to you with options, but like, what do you want them to look like? So then some younger directors have to, they stress themselves out thinking they need all the answers because no one is bringing them things. Right. But I, I the, the, the turning point for me, I remember there, there was a, I heard this quote very early on when I was directing and it really set things straight for me. Um, I was listening to an interview with Edgar Wright. And there was a period of time where when Steven Spielberg was making The Adventures of Tintin, when he was doing that adaptation mm-hmm. of Tintin, which was great for me because I, I, I grew up with the cartoon. So I was really excited for that. But he uh, Edgar Wright was on the writing team for that movie. And someone had asked him, was like, well, what it was like working with Spielberg? And he's like, working with Spielberg is phenomenal because you're sitting in a writer's room and you're pitching out ideas and he's sitting there taking it all in. And he doesn't have this big head about the him where like, well, I didn't come up with the idea, so I don't want to use it. He takes the best ideas because just like you said, at the end of the day, it's a Steven Spielberg film. No one's going to care who came up with what specific idea. Right, right. If yeah. it's a good idea, it's a good idea. And it, and if you're, you're, you're so full of yourself where you can't take a good idea, yeah. it's going to alter. It's only going to make you look better. I mean, that's what I would always say to, you know, it's like, you know, my... All I'm trying to do is take this story and make it the very best it can be. Yes. That's what I'm offering you. You know, if uh, if you decide, you know, that you are absolutely, you know, don't want to take that on board, then, you know, that doesn't usually, that hasn't happened, you know, more than a couple of times. But it's, um, it's enough that i was just like no i'm done with so i definitely want to cycle back to propping at some time but i do have the question um did you always want to direct or was that something that came later on um i didn't at the beginning um i uh, moved back to the uk for a while to get my kid through like high school Mm-hmm. Um, just because I, I'm a single parent and I didn't want to deal with a teenager and working 80 hours a week. Um, and when I was back in the UK, I um, I opened a prop shop. But in, on the side, I was directing theatre. A, a friend of mine was a amateur dramatic... You know, we had a beautiful Victorian theatre where I was mm. living. And she said, oh, we're doing Steel Magnolias. Will you come and direct it? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and I had such a good time doing it. And I realized that it was very um, organic for me to... I knew how to... 
I knew how to talk to act. I knew how to get actors to do what I needed them to do without it being bossy. If you know what yeah. I mean, it was. It's oh, like yeah. how you can have a suggestion in a conversation that makes them go, "Oh, a light bulb moment." That's what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I realized when I was doing that, that I'd kind of been doing that in my head for years. So I'm standing at camera, ready to hand the prop over. They do a rehearsal. It's not really working. The director would go in on various different projects. And I'd sit there and I'd go, you know, if they just said this, I bet that they would make sense. That would make sense to them. And... You'd watch them circle round for like 15 minutes and eventually they would kind of come to that point. And so I realised I'd sort of been doing it, you know, and then you're doing doing shots, you're filming something, and I'm like, why are we shooting this? There's no way that this is going to cut in. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't see how this is, this is going to be used in this scene with the way they've shot everything else. So <clears throat> I was learning and doing it in my head for a long time. And um, then I was, again, when I had gone back to the UK, I hooked up with a, a short film training program and I was running classes for production design and art direction and propping. And I was helping production design these shorts and the the guy who ran the program um, came to me and said, "Look, you have never directed one. Why don't you direct? Why don't you direct one? Because they have they had a fund." Mm-hmm. And and he said, "You know, um, you." And I'm like, "Well, I don't write. I haven't got a script." And he's like, "You know, people get someone to write your script and do it." <laughs> and that was what Ready to Go became. So it was kind of like I had been doing it all along, and then when I actually did it. I realized I should have tried to do it a lot earlier. So you is know, that how Ready to Go happened? Yeah, it's exactly how Ready to Go happened. So I, I, I was going to ask you about that. Like, because uh, like I had, you know, I watched it just the other day. I actually watched it twice because I was really enamored with it. I was going to ask why that film first did you have did was that a script that was sent to you did you work with a writer on it the writer the writer is also was also the dp okay and he had dp'd and written four shorts that i had production designed and we originally met when he called me up and was um getting ready to do a small tiny little film and they needed some props and mm-hmm. I had the prop house. And so he called and he was like, well, I, you know, I, I, you know, is there a chance that we could make a deal? We don't have any money. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, are you the designer? And he said, no, we're, I'm not. I'm the DP and the writer, but we don't have a designer. We don't, I, I'm like, do you have anybody in the art department? And he said, we don't have anybody in the art department. And I'm like, okay, being an art department person, I think that's really silly, so... I'll do it for you and I'll bring you whatever you need and I won't charge you. And he and I have such a symbiotic aesthetic of Mm -hmm. of filmmaking and vision that it was 
it was such a joy to work with him. And that particular film was was directed by um, by somebody else. And at the end of the day, I remember watching it and going up to John and saying, well, the words were great and the sets looked awesome and your filmmaking was incredible. Yeah. It's a shame about the rest of it. You know, the actors weren't mm -hmm. great. The, they they did an ending and he changed the end. The director changed the ending. And I was like, that's just not, that's just so wrong. It just doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> the audience is going to come away going, what the fuck? And in, in, in not in a good way. Yes, yes, yes. There's this complete You know, difference. there's a definite like, you know, WTF at the end of movies where you're, you know, let's go to a bar and talk about this for five hours because it's great. Rather yes. than, what did I just see? And that didn't make any sense. And so he and I worked together and worked together. So when, when um, my friend said, get a script, I called John up and I said, all right, I want you to write me something. And he always, you know, he's a writer, so there's half-finished ideas and notes and things everywhere. And he's always got like five or six things bubbling around in his head. And I said, my parameters are that I want it to be a narrative <laughs> with a beginning, a middle and an end, because as a first time director, I don't want to do a lot of shorts are like this, like little slice of life or some weird little mm -hmm. moment in time. And they're great. But I for me, as a storyteller, I need the story. I need to I'm know the, same way. the three places. And then I can flesh all that out. Once I have those bones, then I can make it something great. And I can figure out what happened way before the beginning of our movie and what's going to happen way after we've finished. And that all, for me, helps me be able to make the best 10 minutes I can. And so he wrote me something and he sent it to me and I was like, hmm... Yeah, it's okay, not great, you know. And he's like, look, if you don't like it, I'll just go in the, I'll make it one day pile and, and I'll do something else. And he did, he, and I got ready to go and I read it and I could see it in my head as I was reading it. Mm -hmm. I just knew what I want, you know. The cutaways, all the cutaways in it are not scripted. Mm-hmm. But I saw the cutaways when I was reading. Yeah. And um, and it was interesting because when I told him I wanted to do that, he was like, oh, okay, that might be a bit odd. Um, the wonderful thing about John is he'll give you a script and then he it's yours. He's yeah. not at camera going, well, that's not what I wrote, or I didn't mean He's that. He's not, not precious about it. No, he's like, look, it's it's your now you make you know here's a script you go make a Linda Reese film. That's really cool. Yeah, and he's awesome, and he's like my DP for life on that side of the pond. I have a DP for life on this side of the pond, but I, but John is my DP for life on the other side of the pond. Um, so, and he's oh. just, it it just uh, we just have such a such a similar aesthetic. That we work well together. Are you both from the UK? You and your... I was actually born... <clears throat> I was actually born in New York. Okay. I was raised in the UK. My parents okay. are British. Um, and so I have a home there and I go back and forth. Um, 
John was from, I mean, when I say the UK, it's actually the Isle of Man, which is a tiny little island in the Irish Sea, mm-hmm. where we all live. Um, so that's where John grew up. He's in London now. Um, but that's where I met him. Okay. And, um, and he's, uh, he's, he, went to, he went to the London Film School. And he's very much of the, you know, we would sit and talk about film and he'd start talking about these obscure Russian filmmakers or some Czech thing that was shot in 1930. And I'm like, dude, I just like Steven Spielberg. And I like, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I'm a Capra kind of, you know, I'm not like dark and, and, you know, but I love dark stories. Yeah. So it's, you know, but I like a narrative. I like, uh, you know, I don't, I want people to think, but not to have to think too hard. Do you think your, your, since, especially on um, Ready to Go, do you think his, you, your two styles blended well together? You are, pardon my terminology, but you are, you're a little bit more pop. He's a little bit more underground. Yeah. We, 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 we come up, that's why that, had that feel it came out so Mm -hmm. well because of that 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 he can bring um he can bring uh, almost like a a visual uh but i was very specific we shot listed that and i was very specific about how i wanted it to look and we would we spent months i was in um georgia working on um, Stranger Things and he was in London no I think he might have been in Russia filming a movie but we would we would send pictures back and forth or you know I saw this thing and I love this framing or I want this or mm-hmm. I had you know and and he tempered down a little bit of my pop because it would have had even more of a Wes Anderson feel than it did if uh, if he hadn't tamed me back a little bit <laughs> mm-hmm. well then i'm actually curious who came up with cause one, one aspect that really uh uh tripped my trigger as being a, a a student of film and just loving everything you know like i i love everything from you know the big broad rom-coms to the weirder czech films right <laughs> i i'm curious whose idea this was uh the aspect ratio changes and the very specific look of those flashbacks that was you because those were great because i got a very <clears throat> clear idea of either when these th- these situations were supposed to take place or and i got a very specific idea of how they were supposed to look and feel based on that you know the first one i remember it kind of felt like you're watching off of a, an old console television yeah exactly that was exactly yeah. it i wanted his his visual memory to be from images that he would have seen. So you're right. The first one was definitely console television. Then the prison one had a very noir. We like, mm-hmm. we took noir. Oh, I love the lighting on his face. Oh my God. The- that was so funny because I'm, I'm telling John this and my producer, that was the other thing. It's like, let's do something that's really simple. And then I'm like, okay, well, I have to build the set. And then I <laughs> want all these cutaways and I need a train. And I need this and I need that. And uh, get me a train, you know, and I but I knew exactly how because I had seen there's a 
I don't can't remember what the movie was, um, but the uh, the F Fonda, um, Jane Fonda's father. What's his first name? Peter. Peter. No. Yes. Wait, no. I get the Fonda's all mixed up. <laughs> anyway, he played. He played um, in uh, Job in um, Grapes of Wrath. He's a Fonda. He's the father, the way the deep father. Anyway, he's in a noir movie where he's in prison, and that's exactly that. It's a wall mm -hmm. and a table, and you don't ever see the bars. It's such you a just simple see the way shadows. to do it. And I explained this to John, and everyone's like, ah, "Not gonna work." It's not going to work. And, and, and we have to build the bars anyway. And so I'm driving down the road. And the Isle of Man is a very rural neighborhood, rural mm -hmm. place, a lot of farms. <clears throat> and I kept seeing these farm gates. And I'm like, those farm gates, if you turn this way and look at them, look just like prison bars. They're set up the same way. They have the slats going down. They're round mm -hmm. this way with the slats going down. So then I drove off and I found a farm and I went in and I said, do you have a farm gate that I can have to use? I'll bring it back. And a mm -hmm. farmer gave me two farm gates and we went and picked them up and we stood them up with stands and we lit it from the side. And it, and that one is very crisp. So it, I wanted it to have that very noir yeah. feel to it. And the, and the, the, the train... Um, that's another thing. What's great about shooting on the Isle of Man is we have a steam train that runs on the Isle of Man. It's it's that's a tourist insane. attraction, but because it's a tiny little place, and my producer yeah. grew up there, she's able to call up, you know, hi Bob at the train thing. We want to use the train and go on the tracks. And this was very shortly after um, Sarah died on the train tracks in Georgia and so I, I was very that. was very conscious of of being smart and, and safe about how we did it and they were great, they said okay the train goes the last train heads towards and John and I looked I had picked a spot on the train track and then John was like this isn't going to work because there's trees and we're going to have to wait between the time of the train and then shooting her on the track so that we can map them. And it could be 20 minutes or half an hour. And we'll have shadow movements and that will make it really hard. Mm -hmm. So we have to find somewhere where you don't have any tall trees that would cast shadows across the track. So we found the spot that we ended up filming in. And um, and it was great. We We on the radio to the train guy and we're like okay so when you come around can you make the steam come out and can you do the hoo -hoo? and it came around and we and it's like tell everybody on the train not to wave at the film crew when they go by and it was great and so then they went and it landed in its sleeping place at the end of the day and we get the radio okay it's in you know it's it's off the track and in its you know garage and uh, you can put your girl on the track. And we tied her mm -hmm. up down there. And uh, that was the first scene I saw in my head, that train track scene. And that particular actress was exactly who I saw. She's very, um, she does a lot of theatre. So theatre actors tend to be much more effusive mm -hmm. than film actors. And I'm yeah. like, silent film people were very 
were theater people. They were they were very effusive. They were big. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, Cat Gorn is the girl who's going to go on that train track. I have to have her. And I had, uh, you know, we threw her down and tied her up, filmed it, and my editor put it together. And we, I have to tell people. And it's funny because you look at it, you know that if you look at it technically, you know that it could never have really been shot. Mm-hmm. Because we cut out of it when the train is practically on top of her. And so you know, in reality, that you could never have done that. Even if you'd done it in reverse, mm-hmm. you couldn't yeah. have done it. Um, but I, I have to tell people because everybody thinks it's stock footage. No, it's it's well, I, I can see why they think that. Yeah, because it's very convincing looking. Right, as um, filmmakers and... don't ever think it's stock footage. Yes, yes. But like audience I was... members go. Wow, you know, you shot that? And I I love stuff like that because um I I remember like when I first started getting film into film, like I used to watch a lot of movies with my mom and like point things out and everything. She used to be like, I hate watching movies with you because you tell me everything's done. And then for me, knowing how it's done or trying to figure out how it's done yeah. is so much fun for me. But what I absolutely loved about that story is I think it's a fantastic lesson out there for any filmmaker that, you know, you didn't have a huge budget on this film. You did this out of love. Uh, and then what you can all do with just making a couple phone calls, asking favors and being creative. Yeah. 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 Like, I'm no, sure... it was, it was, I mean, Kevin, Kevin Doyle. Um, my producer um, is a casting agent, a, a background artist, extras casting agent. Mm-hmm. Um, she's done a lot of shorts. She produced several of the shorts that John and I worked. And she said, "Look, you just let's put it together. You come up with a list of names of like British TV actors, and um, we'll just we'll just ask." Mm-hmm. And so, I um, at the time I was like, "Need you know?" And I'm like, "Look, I'm terrible with names, and I kind of know faces, but." I said to John, look, you have an idea of who Lance is. Why don't you pull some TV faces and send them to me and I'll look and pick somebody. And then Bev did it. And Bev, my producer, sent me a picture of Kevin. And I was like, oh, I, you know, and I think there was five actors that I chose. And we sent them off and three were a straight out no. And two were unavailable. And the two that were unavailable, one of them was Kevin. And then we had to push a week because John got a paying gig mm-hmm. and um, was leaving to go um, to shoot in Europe. And so we went back to the two actors and Kevin became available and he was fantastic. And he mm-hmm, said, yeah. I really loved the script. And he said, the week that I got that script, I also got a script to go and shoot a feature as the prince, as number one on the call sheet for six weeks in Canada. And I got your short and they were both at the same time. And I called my agent up and said, much as I'd like to go to Toronto, I really want to do this short mm. that I'm not going to make any money on. And you're not going to make any money on. But I don't like, I don't, I'm not really in love with the the Canada script. 
So he yeah. turned down a feature film to do my short. And he said, I absolutely loved the story. And, and he said, and I loved the idea of working with a new, with somebody who is changing hats. He said, because I've worked mm. with a lot of new directors and a lot of times, you know, it's, you kind of end up having to direct yourself. And he said, and I thought it would be really interesting to see how it would be with somebody who, you know, and he said, you know, I know props, you're with the actors all the time, you're with the director all the time, you're at camera all the time. He said, I assumed that you probably would have absorbed by osmosis, yeah. if nothing else, at least some idea. And he said, and at the end of the day, it was three days. And, you know, if it turned out awful, nobody would see it and it wouldn't matter. <clears throat> but the production gods shined on me when they gave him to me because he was such a joy. He was such a joy to work with. And he gave my film such international recognition because everybody knows Downton. Every, you know, people would come up, how did you get Mr. Mosley? How did you get Mr. Mosley? What's he like? You know, I mean, we were filming in this tiny barn and we built the set and I was like, we need to have like a green room for Kevin and get a chair and let's have a heater and have a table. And is there Wi-Fi in there? And do we need a Wi-Fi hotspot? And, you know, cause I'm so used to like Hollywood actors mm -hmm. and, uh, and he arrived and I'm like this, you know, and he said, Oh no, I'll just have a chair down here. Just one of those folding ones is fine. And then he, you know, came, went and changed and came down and we were still tweaking the lighting and he's like got this big bag of chocolate covered ginger and uh, crystallized ginger and he's going around introducing himself to all the crew it's like have a bit of chocolate have a bit of chocolate hi i'm kevin nice to meet you and uh the cat was a bigger diva than kevin was <laughs> it it's always it's always great when that happens because it's You've worked on a lot of you've worked on a lot of sets, worked with a lot of big names, and you know there are some people that I'm sure you've worked with that are surprising that they are the way they are, and there are some people who are surprising how kind and giving they are. Yeah. I I haven't done much uh, on big sets. Funny enough, the one big film I did work on, I did work in the art department. I I, I kind of failed upwards. I was a friend <laughs> of mine was working on makeup on the film. And they're shooting in my hometown. Uh, uh, had Sean Astin and Chris Mulkey in it. I love and, Sean Astin. And I was just hanging around, you know, because my friend, I was taking her to set some days and uh, I was hanging around and uh, I got to know the line producer. And he was like, well, I can't have you just hanging around. Do you want to be a PA or something? And he's <laughs> like, we'll pay you. And they paid me uh, way, way less, but... I wasn't working. So, you know, it was something. Uh, and just through working and doing jobs, I eventually wound myself up to be the assistant to the art, to the art director. Oh, wow. Um, but one, the, one of the things that really made a big impression on me was the first day that Chris Mulkey came to set, he found out where, like, the PAs and the, you know, the really under undercard people were at. And he sat down with us and had lunch. Yeah. You know, we didn't not at a table or anything. We were just sitting on a couple rocks and he just sat with us and talked with us. And um I was a big fan of Twin Peaks, so I was talking to him about that. And then he was just in the purge when that came out. So like I was talking about all these things. But right. he he was very he's very kind and giving. And situations like that when you have an, an actor who is a relatively big name willing to just be so genuine and a real person with you it makes it 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 
kind of energizes the entire crew and makes everyone want to try that much harder. Right. That's exactly it. It it just it, I am always amazed that um people who are badly behaved don't realize that they are really kind of screwing themselves because mm-hmm. people won't go the extra mile. Yeah. Because you're not you know, I mean, filmmakers, we're, we're, I always say that we're like whores for the thank you. <laughs> you know, I'll work 18 yes. hours a day in the mud and the grime and everybody will be yelling. And if the director turns around at the end of the day and goes, oh my God, guys, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, okay, yeah, I'll come back tomorrow. You know. Yeah, and especially if you can feel <clears throat> that it's a genuine yeah. thank you. And even if it's not. Yeah, you know that's true. I that's mean, true. I've done a lot like, for a half-assed thank you. Right, you know, but people who know, you know, there's a producer that I worked with, who I was amazed. He every he knew not only everybody's name, from the PAs to the drivers to the actors, and this was a big show with the, with mm-hmm. probably uh, a, a round, you know, camera, hundred and fifty, hundred and eighty person crew big television yeah. show he knew everybody but not only did he know their names like i'd get in a van to go somewhere and he would be there and somebody would get in and he's like hey how was uh how was the you know did they win the baseball tournament i mean he knew everybody's kids what everybody That's was impressive. doing you know and i was like wow you know and he said well you know when we're shooting my job's pretty much done you know so mm-hmm. i don't have a lot to do so it's easy to make you know but he said, it just, you know, I want everybody to know part of my job is to, to have the crews back mm-hmm. and to know that I care about them because I'm going to need them to go the extra mile a lot. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to need to be able to go round and say, you know, we're going to have to do an extra two hours today or we're going to have to shoot right through because we're behind and we're going to lose the light and we'll bring box lunches. You know, <clears throat> it's not just about getting the extra money for meal penalties or anything. It's just having somebody come up and go, I'm not taking advantage of you. I'm not yeah. just screwing you because I know I can. I'm going to come and talk to you and know yeah. that, you know, and then you know that you can go to them. Mm-hmm. And say, you know, I really need this, or you know what? I didn't spend all that money in that episode. Have that back for somebody else. I'm sure you need it somewhere else or something. You know, it's like you want to do things for people who care. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, the, you know, for me, one of the lessons. I mean, I would have my own crew when I propped and I tried to do it within my own crew, but moving to directing. It's one of the, the one of the big things I've taken along with me is even if I can't remember everybody's name, I can still greet everybody and talk to everybody and mm-hmm. and and thank everybody at the end of the day. And if we're doing a particularly difficult shot, understand that stuff happens. Yeah. You know? And um and hopefully if you've hired really good people and everybody's working at their best and something happens, it really is just 
one of those moments, an accident or something. It's not incompetence. And mm -hmm. when things happen and you have directors who are screaming, you know, if you only knew how to do your effing job and, and you know, why why are you even here? You kind of go, okay, well, <laughs> I don't think I want to do anything else for you, buddy. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there are people like that. It'll be, it, it was starting to change a little bit. Um, with the Me Too, because um, not only the the harassment, um, like the the sexual harassment, but verbal harassment was starting to be addressed. And mm. you've worked on film sets. There's a lot. Tempers afraid, and people are stretched. Um, but you don't have to yell. And I mean, I've done it. You know, I've yelled. Um, not as a director, but as a prop person, just kind of like, you know, you go to the truck and you start yelling at everybody going, I got it, but there's just too much. Um, but <clears throat> just being aware now that that, you know, you can, you can be fired. Yeah. For that. It's, it's funny. I remember hearing a story, um, comedian turned filmmaker, Bobcat Goldthwait. Mm -hmm. He tells a story about directing and he says, because he, you know, every, he said, sometimes you lose your temper and you yell without even realizing it's happening. So, and he said, he never wants to be that person, even when it happens. So he actually, every day the set wears a dumb hat, whether it be like a, a, a sombrero or, or something that just looks ridiculous on him. Right. So that way, if you're ever being, if you, if he ever accidentally yells at you, you can know that he looks like the idiot wearing a sombrero yelling at someone. That's a and really that's, good he thing. He kind yeah. of takes the power away from himself yeah. by making it a joke automatically. And he said half the, you know, he's always quick to apologize, but half the people can't take him seriously anyways because he looks like a fool. Right. Right. No, that's good. That's really good. You know, I so like I, to hear those kind of stories. I've met like uh, very few prop people. You know, so the film I worked at, uh, the, 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 the woman who was running the, the art department, it wasn't her day job or something that she had done work for, especially because Milwaukee's a very, Wisconsin's a very small community and everyone right. kind of wears multiple hats. Tell me a little bit about being a prop master, like what all it entails and how you got involved with it. Um, okay. So a prop master pretty much organizes anything that an actor touches. Um, okay. there are obviously gray areas between um costume gray areas mm. between set decoration mm -hmm. uh, we work with everybody um i can work with electricians with about flashlights you know yeah. because that becomes a lighting source um yeah. you know stranger things i know more about flashlights than anybody ever needed to know <laughs> in their entire life um, you know, a chair is a chair until somebody picks it up and hits somebody over the head with it. So then it's a mixture of props and set deck and effects. Mm -hmm. um, so, but that's what we do. We find everything. We build, um, we build character. You can establish what somebody, where their socioeconomic level is in life. <clears throat> by what they have you know you wouldn't have i mean extreme you wouldn't have a homeless guy wearing a rolex you know but you wouldn't have the guy wearing a rolex pushing a shopping cart you know i mean that's an extreme version 
the mm-hmm. opening scene, the first time it, you know, everybody knows Stranger Things. The first time we go into Chief Hopper's home, they pan by uh, a drawing that a child's done, and then we go. They go over a table, and on the table is like pill bottles and half-eaten mm-hmm. sandwiches and beer and you can tell this guy's a slob and then you go by and there's more of that same stuff and everything's just like a big mess and there he is this this guy who's overweight and drooling asleep on the sofa the man hasn't moved or spoken and you already have a whole catalogue of who he is and then he puts a police uniform on and then the whole catalogue changes again. Yep. So you already have in your mind, as the audience member, this the stereotypes that mm-hmm. would fit with all those all those pieces of dressing. So with propping, you can you can add to that and and embellish who they are by what they have and why they have it. Um, so it would be as much, you know, it's the, the obvious ones are rings and watches and eyewear. Uh, we do computers, we do food, we do, you know, like all that dressing that was, that I just described the kid's picture, all the stuff that's on the tables, all his police uniform, all of that stuff. That's all my, that was all me. That was all me. That was all the prop department. Um, Mm. We kind of ice the cake. We come and mm, lay the, like the life that. the life layers on the top, mm-hmm. you know. So it's um, that's how we do what we do. There are, um, I mean, there's silly things like we do license plates on cars, and those are boring. And and but there is a whole Reddit subset, I believe, on the the. There's a series of cleared numbers for license plates. And people pick it up and go, okay, two PCE whatever has been so-and-so's car and so-and-so's car and so-and-so's car. It's crazy how people have way too much time on their hands. <laughs> um, yeah, so we work, with, we work with the designers. We work with the actors. Um, uh, we work with the director. I have to do a ton of research. Um, there are projects like uh, American History X. I had to do a ton of research on um, things that I didn't really ever want to know about, like the Aryan um, Mm. nation. Uh, But through that research, I met a guy who ran a scared straight program who was a former prisoner, who uh, was a former head of of a prison group of the Aryan nation. Had all the ink, all of the things, and he then he now he sort of was born again and and um run ran this scared straight program with kids to make them not fall into this right wing sort of these right wing Aryan Nazi groups. Wow. He, in turn, was able to hook me up with about 150 guys that ran programs with him all through California, all had all the ink, everything, the attitude, Mm -hmm. but they were all reformed. They ended up being our background 
prisoners in the prison scenes in American History X. And added this amazing weight to it of, of reality that you wouldn't have got with with regular background being brought in and and you know they just there's a there's a there's a there's a movement and a swagger and an attitude that an ex-con has that the regular people don't have mm-hmm and, you know, when you're paying somebody 75 bucks a day to stand in the back and lift weights or, you know, just smoke cigarettes in a, in a prison yard, you're not going to get that. But these guys brought all that. And yeah. that came from doing all of my research. And so I, I love that. I mean, you get to learn new things. I get I, I have a kind of a lot of knowledge about a lot of different things. Some of it has yeah. been awesome and some of it, like I said, you know, I don't necessarily need to know that there's that many people who are Nazis and don't believe the Holocaust happened mm. in the world. I don't need to know that. Um, but yeah. but I do know it now. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get involved or how does one get involved with doing propping? Okay. Um, I kind of uh, I kind of fell into it. I've always been <laughs> um, creative. I, as a kid, I wanted this particular dollhouse, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the English equivalent to Barbie was called Cindy and she had a, an apartment and I desperately wanted this thing. And it wasn't like I was, you know, destitute or poor, but there wasn't a ton of extra money and this thing was expensive. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. basically got the doll, but I didn't get all the rest of the stuff. So I ended up building this thing out of cardboard boxes and yoga pots and toilet roll holders. And I made not only her apartment, but this entire apartment complex in my bedroom. I built this whole world. And I was always, anytime I saw stuff that I liked, I would be like, well, I can make that or I can build that or I can paint that or I can sew that or I can do that. So I was always making things. Um, then a friend of mine um, was in production and I was a nanny. I'm a trained nanny, which is really good for working with actors, by the way. I'm just saying because they're all children. <laughs> um, uh, and I didn't really, I got to a point where I was like, I don't want a nanny anymore. And he said, look, why don't you get into production? And I was like, okay. I talked to another friend who was a prop master and I said, if I'm going to finally, after all these years living in California, go into film... I'd rather do something creative yeah. rather than, you know, be driving around, you know, getting somebody's coffee. Um, and so he helped me create a resume and this was way before the internet and way before everything else. So I was going through uh, drama log and uh, screen daily, whatever it was then. And the, all the production four one one books that had mm-hmm. everybody's phone numbers making hundreds of phone calls, sending things off. Um, I think I sent like 500 resumes out with like photocopy in the envelope, lick it, stick it, post it thing the first week. And two weeks later, I was production designing appalling music videos on the weekend (laughs) for, and this was like the sort of late 80s. And so just think sort of glam rock, you know, crazy, mm. coked up, 
madmen with big hair who were doing these flamboyant videos and were all just I actually threw a bucket of water over one of them I was so annoyed because the guy's like drunk and passed out and I'm like I just oh, went God. in and I'm like look I'm here working for free get up get in there so that we can shoot this <laughs> um, and I was a PA during the week and I was working for a production company and I was getting people's coffee and waiting for the electrician at their homes and picking up their dry cleaning. And then on the weekends, I would go off and work on short films and student films and anything that I could. And I built up a reel. And the people that I was working for as a PA knew I was doing that. And they were like, well, let's see what you got. Show us. Mm -hmm. Show us your stuff. And... Um, I would show them and then I, you know, I always ended up when we were shooting commercials, a lot of commercials, sort of gravitating towards the art department as the PA help because I was sort mm -hmm. of on staff with this company. But when they filmed, I was a PA on set and I would always end up gravitating towards the art department. And so between them letting me move up and meeting prop people and art department people and commercials who then would bring me on as a as a lowly set dresser art person mm -hmm. um that's how i built it up and i did that for uh, maybe three years working all the time um to build up enough contacts and then i got to the point where i was like okay same thing that i did with directing i want to be a prop person so i have to not take any set dresser jobs I have to not take any like art runner jobs. I have to mm -hmm. not take any PA jobs. I have to only take prop jobs because otherwise people will not think of me as a prop person. Mm -hmm. And so that's how, and I ended up doing, getting offered a feature. I had not ever prop mastered anything. And I got offered a really little low-budget, non-union feature to prop master. And that was how I sort of started. And I was doing, you know, ridiculously tiny little straight-to-video things. And I had worked as an assistant prop master on a couple of movie of the weeks. And I got a call from one of the designers that I'd worked with as an assistant, um... The prop master I worked with was terrible. I ended up doing his job the whole time. He was never there. And she called me and she said, I have this tiny little movie. It's non-union. Um, would you come in and meet them? They can't. We've interviewed a lot of people and the director doesn't really like anybody. And I went in and met them and that was Reality Bites. Would you say that was your first big film? Yeah. So that was... I, I was actually in prep on some kung fu movie some weird little kung fu movie and i had to leave my assistant to take over that because i was like look this is this was it reality bites was you know stacia share danny devito michael schamberg were producing stiller was directing winona wider was in it i was mm -hmm. like this is a big movie for me it's a big move up yeah and so i did that and that moved me up a level and um then I got in the union and I did uh, Tracy Ullman for a long time, which was really great. And I had worked with um, 
the AD on American Beauty on a feature prior and it was the same thing they brought me in there and um, that was the the you know there are pivotal moments in your career reality mm -hmm. bites was one American Beauty moved me from being you know a prop master on tiny little indie films to okay you're you're one of you know one of the big kids now and so yeah, that yeah. moved me up to um, a different level and so that was how I uh, that was really what my career trajectory had been and I ended up doing bigger features then we left for like eight years so my kid to go through high school and college in the UK and I would come back and do the odd project I came back and did Eagle Eye uh, for DJ Caruso in the middle of that. And um, then I was like, okay, well, I think maybe I'll come back now. My daughter was born here in California mm -hmm. and she couldn't wait to leave the Isle of Man and come back to California. <laughs> and so uh, I was like, oh, well, maybe I, you know, maybe I'll come back. Maybe I'll come back and see if I can get a job. Yeah. And uh, I uh, worked with uh, a director called Alison Anders. And we had done a movie uh, called Grace in My Heart. And she called mm -hmm. me out of the blue when I was just thinking about it. I was in England, just thinking about it. And she said, I'm doing a movie in Georgia. And it's a music, period music movie. And I want you here. I'm begging them to bring you. Will you come and do it? And I came back and I was like, who am I kidding? I love this thing. I love doing this job and they pay well. And uh, I was like, okay, yeah. I did it, went back to England, <clears throat> got a phone call. Can you come back? Um, would you come to Louisiana? We're doing a cop movie, cop show. And uh, I was like, sure. And that was True Detective. And when we did it, it's so funny because you talk about, everyone's like, oh, you know, how did you come back to do the biggest show? And I'm like, look, when I got that phone call, the reconnaissance hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. I was telling people, people like, well, who's in it? And I'm like, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. And they're like, oh, what, the guy from Cheers and that guy who does romantic comedies? Yeah. They're doing yep. a cop it, movie? It quite hit yet, yeah. You know, and, and then it became, you know, the biggest thing you ever saw. So mm -hmm. it was the same with Stranger. It was like I got the call for that. And um, I knew I wanted to do it. And people said, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm doing like this little 80s kids show. You know, and, and it just sort of blew out the water. I'd love to say it was all, yeah. all me both times, but no. Um, but I, I've just been really lucky in the, the projects that I've picked have been, you know, I've had some really bad ones too. Mm -hmm. There was a there was a boxing movie I did called Price of Glory, and one of my directors after American Beauty um, gave me a T-shirt that said, "For every American Beauty, there's a Price of Glory." <laughs> Which so. is a bit mean because Price of Glory was not a horrible movie, but you know it was kind of like you know for every brilliant thing that you do, there's ten not so brilliant things that you have mm. to do to pay the bills. So. And sometimes you can't know. You don't know. You don't know. I didn't know. I didn't know American Beauty 
We didn't know American Beauty at the time was going to be what it was. I didn't know the strange. I knew that I liked the scripts. I knew that I liked yeah. the writing. But even when you're making them, I worked on, um, I worked on a movie called Sea of Trees, in um, with Gus Van Sant, mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. Uh, it was Matthew McConaughey, and this was after the McConaughey. Um, Gus Van Sant directing. I read this script and I'm like, oh my God, this has got Oscar all over it. And uh, Ken Watanabe was in it too. Mm, okay. We filmed it. Uh, it was booed at Cannes. And it tanked. Yeah. And I, when I read that, I was like, I'm like, I just, I, and I watched it and I, Got it. It wasn't. It didn't turn out great. Um, but at the time, and when I read it, I would have sworn that it was going to be this big event. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was uh, when you're booed at Cannes and you're Matthew McConaughey after the reconnaissance. It's got to be pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know. Yeah. Which was a shame. So, if someone wanted to get into doing propping, what advice would you give them? Um, I would say, depending on where they are, um, I, if you want to work in the art department, you want to work your way up through the art department, um, film school is not where you should be. You should save your money and not mm-hmm. go to film school. Um, I tell people if you want to work in the art department, you know, tell their pet, you know, tell your parents, fund me the housing that you would pay that I, if I went to school, and give me a small allowance and let me go PA and work on projects, mm-hmm. and within two years, they'll be, you know, funding themselves or they won't be in film anymore. Because it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's a carny life and it's a freelance life. And you have to accept that every time you finish a job, you have to, you're looking for a new job all the time. Mm-hmm. It's not like you get hired for five years or whatever, you know, it's yeah. all the time. It's a new job. Um, there's a, uh, a program. If people are in California, um, or are willing to move to California, there's a, there's a program called um, Hollywood HPR, and I'll get you the info, and I will send it to you so that you can have it if you want to link it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. Basically, what it is, is it's an 18-month program, and they treat you, and they work it through. It's for below the line. Mm-hmm. So it's for the trades. It's for yeah. grip, electric, art department, propping. It st- was started by a prop master. Um, the union jobs. Yeah, but what they do is they have signed up with the union. So if you complete this 18 months, you get this diploma, you can then go and sign up with the union. That qualifies you to get in. Wow, okay. Uh, which is almost impossible in this town. Now, mm-hmm. Georgia has a program similar. If people are in the South there, um, that, that local in Georgia has an 18-month school program that offers the same thing. They end up, you end up interning almost on a movie for 30 days 
or a television show at the end of it and you can get into the union. And I personally think that that kind of... I'm a firm believer in training. Okay. Um, I really feel that there's a lot of people get in on projects uh, where the unions will come in and turn the projects from non-union to union. And mm-hmm. you get a lot of people who haven't done anything, haven't worked in a, in a, as an assistant, haven't worked their way up, haven't um, done things, and they're suddenly sort of running the show. I had a, a young man come and work for me once, and uh, he was quite cocky, and he said, "Well, I'm a you know I'm a prop master." Went, okay, great. Well, you know, I need an assistant, so you know that's that. And uh, and he went on to explain that he had been hired as a PA and the entire art department quit, and he ended up having to 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 run, uh, be a PA, run the prop department, and they turned the show. So he went from his first movie as a PA to getting into the union as a prop master, wow. and he said, "So I'm a prop master," and I'm like, "I have a whisk. It doesn't make me Gordon Ramsay." Mm-hmm. You know, it's you're not a prop master yet. You might have the title. You might have card that says you are yeah. you're not yet mm-hmm. you know you need to be quiet and learn and I exactly. you know I think that if you get a chance to work for somebody do it find you know and and there's so many shows in so many places now that are not covered by the union I did season three of, of True Detective in Arkansas we were able to hire art department PAs there which you can't do in California Mm-hmm. That if you can, you know, find out the local state, you know, film commission, who's working, just go in and see if you can PA or intern or shadow or do whatever. But the most important thing is if you say you're going to do it and you want to do it, do it. Show up every day and do do whatever they tell you to do. Yeah. So to show up and get on with it. And it's not yeah. glam, you know, you might be in cleaning, you know, tires or, you know, unpacking or in your car shopping or doing everything. I mean, with COVID now, all of that's slightly changing um, with new protocols, but ultimately we'll probably go back to the old way. Um, but but just try and find places that you can you can work. Yeah, you know, as a as a PA or as an intern, and, and, and like I said, Georgia, any Florida's right, any right to, and I'm a union person, and I thank the Lord for the union; they've given me a lot. Um, but the right to work states are the easiest places if you want to start your career. Florida, Georgia, I don't know what Milwaukee is, uh, what Wisconsin is, um, but 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 if it's a right to work state, you can have a union, but they can't not hire you if you're not union Mm -hmm. so you can hire non-union people in to positions so if you find some you know and it's like and watch movies watch movies read learn see you know watch a movie and break it down in you know what people are using what you know it's like okay well what would be the props in this scene what would be you know, the dressing, understand all the, is that your Doug? Understand yes. all the, all the visual yeah. cues that you're given all the time. You know, it's like if you, 
you know, you can do your own film school without, you know, I, I feel that a lot of film schools, like you were saying, your, your film school, it's like great if you want to be a director or a writer mm-hmm. or a producer, but if you want to be in one of the other creative p- positions, then it's probably not the best place mm-hmm. to no, be. 100%. And they're not cheap to do. No. You know, you don't, you know, that you'd learn more in two months on a film set than you'll, than you'll learn in a year at film school. Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, uh, that being said, there's a lot of things about film schools that are completely worthwhile, depending on what field you're going into. Right, exactly. But the biggest thing is, you know, and that you gave a fantastic piece of advice that, you know, shut up and listen because it doesn't know it doesn't matter how much you think you know you probably don't know anything if you've not been on a set before i learned new stuff on sets every single time i'm there and so like i talked about a little bit about the the one film that i worked on like i i i never pa'd before so you know my first couple of days i wouldn't say i was getting yelled at but it was a lot of like what are you doing why are you doing this type of thing because Thing, the thing is, it's kind of a, a, a it's kind of a, a, a baptism by fire type situation because you film sets are not the place to learn in a lot of respects, right. but a lot of films don't want you unless you have some experience. So you kind of have to catch on quickly. Like when I started doing that one film, I had no idea that I was going to end up doing anything of art department. Um, you know, I started by grabbing people waters, and then by the end of it, I had to make fake pee and. <laughs> Uh, but like my big claim to fame is like we had to have a character. There's an aura that had a character's name written on it, and they had me write it. So it's like from now up forever, my right. handwriting is on. So it's like, but if I would have just come in and you know pretended like I knew what was going on, I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity. And and you know film film crews, you know experienced film crews, you know. If you come in and and you make out that you know everything, it's chum in the water. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll mess you up. <laughs> we will you can mess. Sense the you know, fear. but it is well. It's it's also it's like, you know, I know that you don't know that. So yeah. why are you saying that you do? Yeah. You know, and it's you know the classic. It's like go. You know get me a spinner or do whatever, you know, all these silly things. It's like getting, you know, telling, sending people off for an F stop or whatever, you know, I mean, it's like, if you don't know, you know, we can, we can be really, you know, people can be mean and they could, but they'll back, you know, but for me personally, it's like, if somebody is just really, is just a sponge to learn, and is eager to just do everything and anything, then that's great. That's how I was. I appreciate that, you mm-hmm. know. And also, you know, I mean, I've had people like, what, you know, I'm like, ask me tomorrow. Right now, I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. You know, step away, not now. You know, but then later at lunch, I might go, okay, this was mm-hmm. going on and this is why I was doing it and, you know, I had really great mentors. I love to share my knowledge. Um, I'm excited watching new people come up. Um, like I said, it's like I love, you know, that's part of the directing thing of having um, some new people and some, you know, when I did Lancaster Park, I had uh, I had a costume designer, a young woman who was a costume PA 
and uh, from France. And she was recommended to me by three costume designers. I said, I'm looking for some new, it's not a big job, but I need somebody to do the clothing. Mm-hmm. And three women recommended this young lady. And she was phenomenal. She said, my grandmother took me to see a movie when I was seven and I loved the clothes so much I realized that's what I wanted to do and everything I've done since then has been geared towards being a costume designer. She said, I even took a year psychology in college so that I could figure out how I could transfer personality traits into clothing. And I was like, you have the job. Yeah. (laughs) Anybody who has that much passion for something, I might just... The girl who, Catherine Watling, who um, was the production designer for me on um, Ready to Go, I mean, I gave her, I knew exactly how I wanted it to look and I gave her pictures and, and, um, and references and images and everything. But on the day, we were scouting and they were dressing the set and I kept thinking, I'm going to have to go back and dress that set. I know I'm going to have to go back and... Like, you know, mm-hmm. they'll have put everything in, but I know I'm going to have to do it. And we got back from scouting and I walked in and I sort of looked and I was like. And I just went up and moved this cup like half an inch. <laughs> because they'd done so. They yeah. even to the extent where in the kitchen, you, you don't see it. But in the kitchen, in the top corners, they'd taken cobwebs from the stages and put them on sticks and stuck them onto the wall so there were cobwebs hanging down in the kitchen, you know. And I was just like, they had a, you know, I mean, they had done such a good job and it was fantastic. And she was really new. She was really, she'd done, she'd like designed another little short. Um, But she was just somebody who was so excited to do it and so happy to get down and dirty with it. Um, and it and it looked fantastic. And I will, I have a, I'm working developing a feature in the UK. And if I if it happens, I want her to design it because I think she's so good, you know. But then I, mm-hmm. you know, when I did Lancaster Park, same thing. I had this brand new costume designer, but then I had a production designer who's a set decorator friend of mine who's won Emmys and was Oscar nominated. So I had I had all these different levels of people, but what they all had in common is a passion mm-hmm. for the story, you know. And if you have a passion for storytelling and the story, that will come across. And you know, you can you can learn you can learn as you go along, like you said. Um, you know, it's good to train with people. It's good to watch and see how mm-hmm. people do stuff. But. Um, no, I it's uh, I just love it. I love it. I just I want to. I need COVID to be over so I can go shoot something. <laughs> I'm in the same boat. I was actually uh, right in the process of doing. Some, I've never worked with uh, visual effects before, so I was right in the process of doing some visual effects shooting right before it hit. Like I, I it was a Wednesday that they were like, okay, we have to limit rooms of people down to fifty people. And I had a shoot coming on Monday. By Friday, I was down to 10 people. And I was like, oh, I should probably cancel this. 
but I did have a, since I need, do need to wrap up shortly because my wife is uh, in school and she needs the computer to go to class. Um, but I did have a couple uh, couple last uh, last questions for you. First, I you've worked with a lot of directors, a lot of big name filmmakers, being a prop master, and you had mentioned earlier in when we were talking that you learned a lot on set working right next to these people. What would you say? And this might be a big question. What would you say the best piece of advice you've learned from another filmmaker is? Watching them work. Watching them work is to not overthink it. Um, I sort of channeled um, a couple of people when I started to direct. Alison Anders was one um, because she spends a lot of time with the actors prior just in conversation talking about who the characters are and who they are so that when you get there on the day, you kind of let them loose and you're mm-hmm. not fixing minutiae yeah. um, in there. And um, the other piece would be really... It's, it's about knowing what to, um, you know... Don't worry if the if the desk doesn't look quite right, as long as the one thing you're going to insert does look right. And so that so it it was it was more sort of general generally watching and learning those pieces of like let you know do all the prep work. Not only with your actors but with everything, so that when you're on the day you can let everybody go and then just see what magic happens rather than not plan at all. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with a lot of people who don't plan at all. And that means that you have 150 people standing around. And as a female director and as an older female director, I absolutely cannot afford to waste a minute of time when they start paying me on set. Because I've already, I'm already working at a disadvantage, according to them, according to the powers that be. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, that would be, that would really be it, is do, do the prep work and know, know what you want to shoot. And then I think the last question I have for you is you had mentioned after uh, Ready to Go, your next short, which you finished, is called Lancaster Park. What can you tell me about that? Okay, so I, we had talked earlier, uh, Ready to Go did really well, um, great on the festivals, won a lot of awards. It got me into the Sony Directors Program, and that got me into a lot of meetings, a lot of general meetings with showrunners and, and, and producers for potential television directing. And every single time in the room, they were like, look, your experience is awesome. Your short is awesome, but you have one piece of work. And that's not enough for us to be able to tell whether or not you can do this. So I was then, all right, I need to do something else and I need to do it longer, even though it will eliminate certain festivals because I'll be over the... 15 minute window of a lot of short film festivals 
but I need to do something that's closer to the half hour drama time frame, which is, and we're, I think, 18 minutes, so we're only a couple of minutes short of that. I needed it to be bigger in expanse. I also wanted to direct women. Um, mm -hmm. uh, John wrote the script again, and um, I said, look, I want to tell a story that I'm, that I can speak to. So I want a single mom and a teenage daughter um, because I have lived that life, not in a trailer working at Walmart, but you know, I, I know that relationship mm -hmm. and I would like to explore that relationship. Um, so that's how, and, and I'm like, and I love trailers in the desert. So go write me something. <laughs> and he, yeah. he came back with, with, again, I learned a lot. I didn't have to chop anything from ready to go, but I chopped a lot from Lancaster Park. And one of the things I've learned in my own, you know, Linda's directing film school that I've been running myself for me for two years is that a lot of times there's just too much stuff in a script. Mm -hmm. And what you need to do is, um, I told John, I'm like, look, Michael Angelo said that when he got the piece of marble, all I had to do is take away all the shit that wasn't David. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm like, we just need to take away all the stuff that isn't the story that I want to tell. And there's too much other stuff going on in here. And so I pared down a tremendous amount and ended up with something that I really like that's, that's, a, that's quite, a, it's quite a simple story, but it's, it's an intense story without mm -hmm. having, you know, and I'm like, it's, you don't need other themes going on. The theme of this movie is, is parental guilt. Yeah. You know, so that's how yeah. that happened. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Hopefully once it's done, um, it'll play somewhere nearby. So well, I can, it's in, I can it's it in, it's in this year's Milwaukee festival. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. They, they selected it. So it's out on its festival run already. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, this has been a, a really enjoyable conversation for me. I feel like I got, I, I learned a lot and I feel like it was really fun to talk with someone who kind of views the filmmaking scape in a different way, but yet similar in, in, in some ways. Uh, and I really do appreciate all the time you've given me. Hey, not a problem. Thank you. And hopefully everything recorded. All right. And, uh, I'll get Bob to get the file and we'll send it to you. Yeah, perfect. Just send it over to me and uh, uh, keep me in touch about everything that's going on and I'll send you a link to this when it's done. Thank you. I will. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Byers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.